Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim wraps up our mini-series on the life of Abraham as we look at a practical application of the cell and the coracle. As always, for more information about how you can become part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. And if I have not yet met you, my name is Tim, and uh, welcome to South Harbor. We're glad you're with us. Um, and uh, uh, by the way, before, before we launch into a sermon, um, we leave, so myself and 51, uh, well, there's 51 of us, uh, are leaving tomorrow right after lunch to go uh, for just shy of two weeks in Israel. So uh, if you could, I, I'm going to ask that if you would be willing to pray for our group, um, uh, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, pray for a couple things. Uh, a, just the, the safety of a trip with this many people and uh, um, the safety of travel and all those things. Um, pray for that, of course. Um, but also, if you'd be willing, uh, there's always, uh, uh, when you, whenever you give yourself to whatever it is God is going to speak to you in any kind of situation, but especially when you're with 50 people and you're studying the scriptures, you're saying a lot of prayer, you're walking on the land, the actual soil that, that Christ walked, and you're taking in all of these lessons. You're putting away the cell phone and the Instagram and the Netflix and all those things for, for two full weeks and just kind of opening yourself up to, God, what, what do you have for us? Uh, whenever that happens, uh, God tends to speak some pretty significant things. Um, it's been my experience that uh, there's, for at least one or two people in any group, uh, God says something really big, like the job you're doing is no longer the job you will be doing, things like that. And, uh, and so if you could just be praying for our group that um, that, that spiritual transformation uh, that hopefully happens for all of us, but uh, if you could be praying for that. Uh, I am aware that uh, in, in a setting like this, the enemy tries to come in and um, and steal some of that joy, right? It's uh, our, we got a callus on our foot. or I mean, there's always something like that that can steal some joy. And so I'm just be praying for, praying for our group. I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, I'm very excited and nervous. That's always this, the emotions I feel heading into a trip like this. And so I'm um, just be praying for our group. Uh, it'd be greatly appreciated. If you want to follow along, we'll have a blog that I'll figure out how to get to you all. Um, and you can kind of see exactly where we are uh, when we're there. So um, anyway, if you have a Bible... Would you please, actually, you, you want to do something weird? Okay, if you have a Bible, turn to me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's why that's weird. Um, I did not allocate for time appropriately in the first service. Uh, I got like one-third of the way through the sermon, and then I, I so here's a secret, uh, and, I, and some of you already know this secret, but if you look back, everybody go ahead and look at that screen, you will see that I can see uh, the stuff that's on your screen up front. And some of you know this already because you, during the service, will turn back to see how many slides I have left because you're ready for lunch. And so whenever I see somebody kind of do that turn back, I'm like, okay, they're ready for lunch. I got to wrap this thing up. Uh, I was like a third of the way through uh, my uh, sermon and realized, oh, I got, a lot, I got a lot left and no time left. And so we'll do something weird. I'm going to give you the second half of the sermon that I didn't get to preach to the first service, at least not all of it. And, uh, and so let me sum up the beginning section um, that I, uh, and I'll try to take 15 minutes or so of a sermon and condense it down to like three. Okay, so we'll try to do that. Um, tried to make the case for service, long intro, uh, that, that Abraham, who we've been looking at, we're about to turn gears and now look at his son Isaac uh, in the book of Genesis. Um, but Abraham's life is oriented, oriented around two uh, really two movements. There is 
uh, the go movement or what we would call the challenge of, of life. Like your job as a, uh, is to step out into the uncomfortable places. So Abraham steps out into the uncomfortable places. And then there is the invitation of it all. Like become a certain kind of person. So don't just keep going. But at, at some point, I want you to put down some roots and, uh, and become a certain kind of person. We'll call that invitation. Those two rhythms, challenge and invitation, or invitation and challenge, become the dominant rhythms of discipleship for just about everyone you're going to bump into in the Bible that makes some kind of an impact with their life. Um, so we, we looked at Abraham and how Abraham went to a foreign country. He settled. Um, he faced all kinds of adversity challenge. And then last week we talked about hospitality and how he lived a certain kind of lifestyle. Uh, and uh, that is invitation. So invitation challenge. It uh, turns out that those same two rhythms you find in the... In, Jesus' final great commission he gives to the church is going to have invitation and challenge kind of language in it. Like, so go make disciples, but then also teach them a certain kind of lifestyle. Teach them to obey. Um, teach them to live a certain kind of way. Sound good? Make sense? That was 15 minutes. All right. Peter. <laughs> oh, you're like, just do that in the next one in five minutes too, and we'll be good. Um, <laughs> Where were you cutting the, second, the first half last week with the Sodom and Gomorrah story? Um, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, I, if you bring your Bible from home, you get the delight of uh, actually finding 1 Peter. It's kind of hard to find. It's only a handful of pages. But when you find it, you get to find it and say, oh, there you are, Peter, which is, uh, <laughs> which, which is a reference from the movie Hook, which I know. Um, Hook, you, you, you're familiar with Hook? By the way, I'm, I'm aware that that's from the 90s. I actually made the concession that, you know what? I think uh, obscure 90s references is where I'm going to settle for this point on. It's, it's my job, if you're in Gen Z, uh, it's my job to introduce you to the greatest decade of pop culture, um, which is the 90s. It's not right now. It's the 90s. Uh, and I'm also aware that anytime I've tried to say things that are relevant, like kind of relevant slang, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and I didn't even, sometimes I don't even know I don't know what I'm talking about. Apparently, a couple of months ago, I made... Uh, I said something, and I, I, uh, it's a, I won't say it because those of you who know what it means will also be embarrassed again. But apparently I said something that I didn't fully understand what it meant, and it was like a slang reference that Gen Z is now using. And, uh, and it's quite embarrassing to say as a pastor from a stage. And so I said that thing, and then uh, and I was told later, like a couple weeks later, like, hey, do you remember when you said that? That was weird. So uh, we, won't, we won't do that again. I'll stick to the 90s references. Um, um, but but uh, Gen Z, just so you know, 1990s were the greatest decade. And by the way, uh, I, have a, I have a friend. I don't have time for this. I have a, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have a friend who's got a 13-year-old daughter. And the other day, she's wearing a Nirvana t-shirt. And so I said to her, I was like, I go, oh, you like Nirvana? And she goes, what? <laughs> and I go, Nirvana, you're wearing the t-shirt. She's like, yeah, I like the shirt. And I go, well, it's a band. She goes, it is? <laughs> That's called cultural appropriation. You're taking our culture. And <laughs> All right, uh, Peter, chapter two. Um, let me set up Peter just a little bit and then we'll dive in. Uh, Peter is a disciple of Jesus and uh, he's stepping into a world. Um, now in his particular world, he's got to figure out how to take the movement of Jesus and, uh, and essentially help a group of new Jesus followers uh, establish deep enough roots that when obstacles come, when adversity comes, they've got the kind of roots that they can endure the, the adversity. 
And it's under Peter that you'll kind of see that uh, when Jesus first calls Peter, it's him and 11 guys on a hill that he's going to send into the world. And, uh, and then Peter's young when that happens. He's now older looking at this like, okay, the movement has grown, um, but, but he knows that this has to go worldwide. Jesus said, take it to the ends of the earth. So it has to go global and they need, they're going to need deep roots. Now, if you follow ahead a couple hundred years, what you learn is that Christianity does boom. It booms. Uh, within 150 years of Jesus, Christianity moves from 11 guys on a hill to the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. More people following Jesus than any, uh, anything else. And so the question that I want to wrestle with in the few minutes we have is, is what is the strategy for that? Like, how does that happen? If we could synthesize it, maybe like the invitation challenge stuff, like if we could synthesize it, how does it happen? What's the strategy Peter's going to give to these young Christians to say, here's what I'm going to need you to do if this is going to happen? First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, so imagine you're just like a brand new Christian, right? You come in with all the baggage that we all have, right? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and they will glorify God on the day he visits us. So again, you, you see the strategy of invitation and challenge. Like go, you're foreigners and exiles, so you're gonna go into a land that's like not comfortable for you. It's a challenge. But then also, uh, I want you to live a certain kind of way that when people see your lifestyle, they're, gonna, they're going to say, okay, we want to know more about this God. Um, which raises the question, how do we do that in our world? Um, that, so Peter's synthesis, we'll go back to it if we have time. Um, but how do we do this in our world? If you pay attention at all to uh, kind of trends, statistics and polls and things, uh, what you'll see and what you've, we've seen now for the last several census Censuses, uh, what you see for the last several census uh, is that Christianity has moved from being the dominant religion in our nation. And uh, every year, the number of people who are reporting on the census that they are none in the religious affiliation category, like N-O-N-E, not none, um, but like, uh, like they're not religious at all. That number is continuing to grow and it was just surpassed recently. There's more people saying that they're, they're not part of a Christian uh, part of Christianity, then they are saying that they are in our nation. And so, um, so how do we do it in our world? How do, we, how do we actually, if Jesus has changed everything for you, how do you help people know him in a way that's not weird? It's not bait and switchy. It's not high pressure. It's not like, how do you actually like, how do you do it? Uh, now, when I was in seminary, there was uh, some required courses that you had to take. One of them was on, uh, it was called missiology. And when I took this class, missiology was in a bit of an identity crisis. So if I would have gone to seminary a decade earlier, what you would study in your missiology class was how to take, as a Christian, how do you take Christian principles, Christian values, and just the, the heart of the gospel and bring that to a nation, usually somewhere else, who doesn't know Jesus at all? What would you tell them? How do you tell them that? That was missiology. But when I was in seminary, missiology was in a bit of an identity crisis because we were finally beginning to realize that we are no longer, uh, in many ways, 
we are not just trying to take Jesus and bring Jesus to another culture, whatever that means. Uh, but now we live in a world that for many people, they're, they're calling what we're in right now a post-Christian world. In other words, lots of people that you know will say, yeah, I already know the story. Jesus died for my sins, uh, Easter, uh, born a virgin. I, I know the story. I actually grew up in the story. I went to the classes, did Sunday school, did VBS. Uh, I know the story. It's not for a lack of knowledge. I just don't buy it. I don't think it's true. I, I think you're kind of weird for giving up brunch on Sunday. <laughs> like, the, I think that's kind of weird. You have neighbors right now that are probably thinking what you're doing right now is a bit weird. Like, why on earth would you do this when you could do a number of other things with your one or two days off? Like, why, why do this? So how, this is the question we wrestled with in seminary. The posture is different. They're, both are important. Bringing Jesus and uh, in, in teaching the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel is a certain, it's absolutely urgent and necessary in our world. There are still people who don't, who have never met a Christian. However, uh, for most of us, the other category is equally as important, if not more important for our day-to-day -day lives. And that's how do we bring Jesus to people who already know the basic heart of the gospel. They know the stories. They, they walked away from it. How do we bring Jesus uh, to a culture that is now what many are saying is post-Christian? Now, if, you, if, if we know each other, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that for me, uh, I'm always asking the question, uh, is this, has anybody done this before? Right? Like, we, shouldn't, we, we should try things, but we shouldn't just take stabs in the dark at doing this. Is there anyone who's done this before that we can learn from? The good news is this has happened before. We have had in our, in our history a... Uh, a, a time when Christianity was the dominant religion and then it ceased to exist and then it came back. It's happened before. That's the good news. The bad news is it only has happened once, at least on a large scale, and it's happened a long time ago. So we'll have to adapt their playbook a little bit, but it's only happened once and it's happened a long time ago. Now with that, let me give you some historical recap uh, of, the, of the church uh, this is Church History 101 in a blip. The church, as many of you know, was born. We have a birthday. It's called Pentecost. Church was born on Pentecost. 33 AD, uh, Jesus ascends. Uh, 50, uh, 10 days after his ascension, 50 days after Easter, you have uh, the Holy Spirit. Peter gets up and preaches a sermon. Same Peter, younger version of Peter. Preaches a sermon. Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost and the church is born. We move now from 11 guys on a hill with Jesus in Galilee uh, to 3,000 converts. And if you read the book of Acts, they're adding to their numbers daily. For the first several hundred years of the church, this is how it worked. We met in homes, not usually on stages because Christianity was, was kind of an oppressed people group at that time. We met in homes and you opened up your home and you broke bread and you had a meal and you shared where your hope comes from. You shared your story. And this movement grew because there were people that weren't invited into homes. And all of a sudden, they're now invited in. They're included. And they encounter Christianity. And they ask all these new questions. And, and they, they become followers of Jesus. That happens for about 150, 200 years or so. The, Christ, the Christian church is booming. Rome at this time, the Roman Empire, they want to stomp this out something fierce. Because what they've observed amongst Christians is while you are good citizens and you pay your taxes and you don't rip people off and that's all fine and that's all good, 
There is a certain allegiance to the emperor you're not paying. There's a certain, uh, and there was a, there was a certain respect the emperor deserves. He sees himself as a god, and you're not bowing down. So they're trying to stomp out this movement. However, the more they stop, the more this movement just continues to spread. Okay, so that, that lasts until about 313 AD, a uh, uh, moment, if you heard of the emperor Constantine, signs an edict of Milan, essentially declaring Christianity to be the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Now, people have opinions on whether this is authentic, uh, he actually converted, or if this is just he realizes Christianity has spread so wide that if I'm going to have any political power, I just got to say I'm a Christian too. I, I don't know whether it was authentic or not. I wasn't there. I can't tell you. However, he declares Christianity to be the, to be the dominant world religion, 313. And if you're, if you're a Christian at this time, you probably are looking around saying, we did it. We won. This is it. Uh, the, the kingdom of God has come here, right? Like we now have, because uh, we're no longer like hiding in secret rooms in basements and just breaking bread. We now get prime real estate in all of the major social centers of, of Europe. We now have massive cathedrals with the finest art in the best locations in all of Europe. We did it. However, a generation later, a, uh, if you follow history, a, you, know what, you know what happens. Uh, a group of people from the north, the Vandals, the Goths, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, all the Goths. The Goth, not the Gothic kids, that's a different thing. 90s reference. Uh, not, different Goths. But they swoop in from northern Europe. And uh, they come swooping down and they essentially take, they, they replace the Roman Empire. And over the next hundred years, the Roman Empire is wobbly. It's, it's, it's beginning to fall apart. The emperor runs. He decides this is not safe here. I can't do this. And the great cities are captured in the, whole, in the Roman Empire. Uh, the capital of Rome is shifted because now we're, it, like Rome is not safe. So they shift the capital to Constantinople uh, out in the east. And there's a remnant left back in, the, in, the, in kind of old Rome. But that remnant now is filled with paranoia People don't trust each other. Uh, wars are breaking out. There's like political, you've got the, the Goths, the Visigoths, and some people are saying, I think they're right. And other people are saying, no, I long for the days when it was Rome again. And so you've got like these two political worldviews that are constantly in collision. There is sickness and disease that are wiping through. And then there's paranoia of who's responsible for the sickness and the disease. By the way, I know it's a long time ago, but does this not feel a bit like the world's is it just me? Um, now, at the same time, apparently just me. Uh, at the same time, Christianity, as we know it, dies. Just let that settle in. In Europe, not everywhere, but in Europe, Christianity, as we know it, dies. It gets, um, whatever is left is not what we would call Christianity. It gets twisted and it gets perverted. Um, it becomes about magic and ghosts and ghouls. Uh, the, the mask, what we call communion, uh, the, the last moment of mass, it, it's, it's brought into Latin, which nobody understands. Uh, the, the final movement of communion is the priest would say the words of Jesus, which were, for you, my body. But in Latin, it sounded like, well, the, the actual phrase is hoc est corpus, for you, my body. But because it got so twisted with magic and nobody spoke the language, people heard hocus corpus and they heard, okay, so the bread becomes the body of Jesus and wine becomes blood. 
And so they took that magical, when, when the priest says those words, that's what happens. So they took the magical words, and they brought it to the streets. And that's why we have hocus pocus. Uh, so it gets all twisted and all distorted in Christianity by the year 500 AD. Talk of Jesus, as we would, as we would know it, is virtually zero. Come with me 400 years later. 400 years later on, uh, on Christmas Day itself. Uh, in the year um, 800 AD, King Charlemagne and Pope Leo established what we refer to as the Holy Roman Empire. Christianity is back. Raising the question, what happens in those 300 years? How did Christianity go from being dead, virtually dead, to being the dominant religion again in the Roman Empire? What happened, who did it, and how did they do it? The answer comes from the most surprising place of all. This is not a place you would expect. Um, It comes from a group of people no one would have expected to bring Christianity back. They were not the educated. They were not the social elite. They did not come from major cities or cultural centers. They were not from Constantinople. They were not from Rome or from Athens. Uh, The people who would reunite Western Europe, who would save Europe, who would save civilization and in some sense bring them back to Jesus, bring the culture back to Jesus, was a group of people known as the Celts. Or uh, C-E-L-T-S. You've heard of the Celtics? Basketball team, Celtics? The Celts. Uh, these, these Irish, Scottish people. Uh, wild, outrageous, loud, long hair, long beards, uh, meet, let's meet in the pub and sing our songs. And uh, this next pint's on me, Celts. We'll laugh a lot. Storytelling Celts. Uh, you know, uh, remember the movie, <laughs> another obscure 90s reference coming. Do you, not, this is not obscure. Do you remember the movie Braveheart? Okay, Mel Gibson. Uh, remember, he paints his face. Remember the, remember the scene, this is a little bit crass, but remember the scene where Mel Gibson bears his backside to the enemies. That's the Celts. Now that happens a little bit later, but that's the kind of people that will restore Christianity to the world. These rough, strong, wild, storytelling, song singing, beer drinking Celts. We can trace everywhere they went to hot spots of Christianity. Uh, Norway, Germany, Spain. There's these little pockets of Christianity wherever they went. You may have heard of some of the heroes, uh, St. Boniface. Um, St. Brendan, uh, how about St. Patrick, the green beer guy? Saint, not really, had nothing to do with green beer, but um, the same St. Patrick. Uh, there's a great book called uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization by one of my favorite historians named Thomas Cahill that I highly recommend. Um, but the question is how? How do they do it? And so how do, they, how do these loud storytelling, song singing Celts save, save the world? You can really distill it all down to two circular shapes. Two circular shapes. The first, by the way, these two shapes kind of carry the rhythm of invitation and challenge right within the shape. Uh, the first was a, known as the cell. I'll show you a picture of a cell. Um, it's a mud-thatched circular building. This one's pretty big. Typically, you could, you could fit two. Sometimes you could fit four people inside of it. Sometimes you could fit eight people. Um, but it's essentially, it's a one-room hut, and it was mud-thatched roof, kind of looks like shredded weed on the top. 
Uh, And the cell, they said, was all about formation. We're going to learn to pray. Eight times a day, they said, we're going to pray. We are going to learn how to fast. Nobody likes to fast. We're going to learn how to fast. We are are going to learn how to do the spiritual disciplines, how to do the spiritual discipline of confession, how to do the spiritual discipline of generosity. We are going to commit ourselves to getting deep, deep roots. And in the cell, these wild, sometimes, sometimes, uh, kind of like a fire in the belly, beer drinking, storytelling, song singing. These Celts learn to take all of that passion and not extinguish it, but how do we take all of this passion and harness it, focus it on a commitment to God? That's the cell. It's in the cell that we find ourselves formed. It's in the cell that we find ourselves get deep roots. It's in the cell that we become people of substance and character. That's the cell. The second circular shape is known as a coracle. I'll show you a picture of a coracle. It's a circular boat. Um, again, it's a thatched bottom. And uh, they still have these in like Vietnam, Thailand. Uh, anybody been in a coracle? Um, the, the reason they're popular there is because they're light. You can throw it up on your back and you can walk to a river or a lake and you can go fishing. Um, and so the, um, they're, they're convenient in that sense. A uh, wood bench in the middle um, can fit like, two-ish people in a, in a coracle. Now, where this, this came in handy uh, was, uh, by the way, you can see the obvious problem with the coracle, right? Like if you're, anybody ride boats, drive boats? You ever try to drive a circular boat? It's like a sled, ever try to do a sled and try to steer a sled, in, in, like a circular sled in the winter? It's really hard to steer, to steer a coracle. However, they didn't need paddles, not these Celts. The reason was because they said, uh, when a moment comes, and we recognize uh, the guy in charge was known as an abbot, when the abbot recognized that we've got two people in the cell who are spiritually deep, we will bring them out to the, when they're ready, we will bring them out to the coracle. And the whole community would gather, and we will gather around them, and we will say a prayer over them, something along the lines of, uh, Holy Spirit, Jesus, Heavenly Father, Lord of the wind and the waves, guide our brothers to a people who are far from you. Then they'd put them in the boat, no paddle, no compass, and they would push them out. And the two dudes in the boat would kind of wait until they bump into the shore. They would get out of the boat. They would look around and say, is there a civilized, God, is this civilization, is this this where we're supposed to be? If the answer was no, they'd get back in the boat and they would kick off and they would wait till the next one. But when they got there and they discovered, wow, these people, I think we're supposed to stay here. They would say some sort of a prayer, something along the lines of, Lord, would you use us? Then they would move into the town. Now, um, uh, the world at that time is... Pretty dark. We've talked about this, right? The, the world's fallen apart. It's got, given into superstition. Neighbors fight against neighbors. One neighbor puts that political sign up. The other one puts that political sign up. And those don't, they don't talk to each other anymore. That's their world. But the Celts moved in. And the Celts, they, they're still Celts. They still love storytelling and singing and laughing. And they still, they still like their beer. They're still Celts. And they move in. And all of a sudden, all of the neighbors start to realize in every city they move in, they've got something we've lost. 
Why are you so filled with joy? We make more money than you, and yet you're laughing. Why are you so happy? You, why, are, why are you sharing with one another? You speak openly about your problems. We don't do that because people use that information against us. Why are you like this? I've never heard you brag about yourself. Why are you like this? And the Celts would invite their neighbors then into the cell. And they would invite them into the rhythms of hospitality and fasting and eight times a day prayer. And the cell in the coracle, in the course of just a few, a couple decades, changed Western Europe. It's the cell and the coracle. Um, by the time 800 AD comes, 400 years after the fall of Rome, the Holy Roman Empire is established because we have literally flipped a culture. The cell and the coracle. Now, um, so how do we do it in our world? Uh, I think the, the, it's a little bit different. Um, but, but what is the cell in our world? Some of you love the cell. You're actually, your natural inclination is you love the cell. You love the quiet times. You love, um, whether it's quiet time together with other Christians, like encouraging each other in prayer, or you just love uh, hunting and going out in the woods and that's your quiet time. You love the, the qu- solitude. You love Bible studies. You love the discipline of fasting. You love the cell. That's your thing. I'm actually wired like this. I love, I love trying to figure out if I can accomplish the next discipline. I, it's just I, I'm weird like that. Um, this is your rhythm. You love the cell. For those of you who love the cell, the Celts would say, I think Abraham and Jesus, and you probably need the coracle. The, some of you love the coracle. You love adventure. You love getting your fingers dirty. You like, you don't, you get to the spot where you're like, I don't want to just study it. I want to go do it. I want to go serve. I want to go, I want to go do it. I want the risk. I want the adventure. For those of you who love the coracle, you may need to get into the cell to get some deep roots. Um, this is what changes the world. Now, um, oh, okay. Uh, let's go back to, not Abraham. Let's go back to, let's go back to Peter real quick. I'll, I'll be quick. Notice how this is in, listen for the rhythms in what Peter says. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, now, it's probably not easy to see in here, but what, Paul, what Peter is doing is he's stringing all these Old Testament ideas together. This phrase, chosen people, my people who declare my praises, is taken directly from Isaiah 43. Uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, comes from Exodus 19. Um, once you did, had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, now you are a people. Comes from Hosea. Um, actually, that one's really interesting because Hosea, if you know the story of the prophet, um, Hosea marries a prostitute. And it's like this picture of God with the people who have betrayed him. And so he marries this prostitute and she has two kids. They're not his kids. Um, she has two kids and, and he gets to name his kids. And so he names the first kid, not my people. It's different in Hebrew, but that's essentially the kid's name. Can you imagine going to middle school? And it's like, yeah, I'm not my people. I'm present. Uh, and the second kid he calls, you do not know mercy. Not my people and you do not know mercy. Um, then Hosea reconciles with his wife and he changes their names to the one who knows mercy and my people. Here's what Peter's doing. You're in a world that looks like it's against you. You feel like foreigners and exiles. You've done some things. Some of that's not your fault. Some of it is your fault. 
You need to know that God loves you. You are not insignificant. You are not insignificant. Forget whatever your name was before. God has given you a new name. It's pretty beautiful, isn't it? Um, But then uh, he says, okay, so that's who you are. But then immediately on the heels of that, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. What rhythm is that? That's the cell. That's the challenge. Or that's, that's the invitation. That's the cell. Um, so you have a new name. Now your job is to take all those wild passions and get into the cell. Pray. Fast. Bible study. Uh, he then continues, so why do this? Uh, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see what he's saying there? I do want you to do the Bible studies. I do want you to pray. I do want you to fast, uh, but I don't want you to live in the cell. Go to them. Uh, then if you jump ahead to 1 Peter chapter 3, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I quote it a lot. He says, uh, verse 15, he says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, in other, in other words um, what he says is, I want you to look different. Uh, a language I like to use is, I want you to be a little bit weird. Because I want you to be the kind of person that when your neighbors see you, they say, why are you this way? We want more of that. I've said that prayer. It's a weird prayer to pray, but I've prayed the prayer, God, make me weird, but in a good way. Like, make me weird. I want to be the kind of person who's living a certain kind of way that is countercultural in a really good way. Um, This past Thursday, I was outside, and we had missed, uh, I was on vacation when it was nice here. It was actually rainy in Florida, but it was nice here. We took the wrong vacation week. Um, And uh, and, I missed out on the warm weather, and yet when I came home, everything was starting to bud. Right? And so then it got cold last week. But on Thursday, it was nice outside. And so I had the whole family outside. And I noticed that in my lawn, um, there are uh, sprinkled throughout my lawn dandelions. Um, now, as a guy who lives in suburbia, I don't like dandelions in my lawn. I, I spray stuff to get rid of my dandelions. Um, but I see these dandelions. And uh, I was reminded of something I learned a while back that, you know what? We call, we call a dandelion a weed. You know what horticultural, horticulturalists call dandelions? They call them pioneer plants. Uh, Listen to this, or pioneer species. This is a definition of a pioneer species. Pioneer species are hardy species, which are the first to colonize previously disrupted or damaged ecosystems, beginning a chain of ecological secession that ultimately leads to a more biodiverse, steady state ecosystem. In other words, once the dandelion, you you already know this, you know how dandelions work, once the weed, the pioneer species, puts down its roots, it will create a root system so deep that you can mow them. You can try to pluck them, but the root system is so deep that they'll just keep coming back. Now we've got sprays and stuff, but, but they understand like the, the root system is so deep that it's really hard to get rid of the dandelion. But if you read the definition closely, the pioneer species is a, called a pioneer species because once you get one, it often opens the door for others to come in. Again, something you already know. But you leave your lawn untouched for five years. Your lawn will look very different than just the green manicured lawn. 
Do you follow the metaphor? As a Christian, you and I have been given the really beautiful, brilliant call of Jesus to be pioneer species in a world of monotony, in a world of manicured lawns, in a world of um, I go to work, I come home, I watch Netflix, I go to bed, I go to work, I go home, I, I live for the weekend, I live for the vacation, in a world that all of the creative energy of your neighbors, my neighbors, goes towards kitchen renovations. You get to go in and be the Bring the beautiful diversity of the kingdom of God. You get to be the pioneer species. To be people who go, that's challenge. Uh, that's the coracle. And to be people who are deep. That when they actually get to know you, they say, why are you so weird? You can say, can I tell you? Not a bait and switch, not high pressure sales. This is not... Like here's, like, here's how to trick people into following Jesus. This is simply, you live a certain way, and when they ask you, you say, I'd love to tell you. Lord, uh, we, we long to see our neighborhoods look more like this. Uh, Jesus, we long for our neighbors to come to know you, uh, not, not just so that we can say that they're Christian, not just, but Lord, we, we've seen what you do in lives. We've seen what you do in our life. Uh, Lord, we, as we sang earlier, we were once a dead people. Now we've come back to life. Lord, we've seen it happen, and we want to see it happen to the, in the lives of the people we love. Uh, Lord, we see so many people in our lives, in our world, who are sad and who are lonely and who are barely hanging on. And Jesus, we want them to know who you are. Give us the courage to be people who go. And Lord, give us the roots to go deep. Uh, Jesus, would you spark a movement once again? Would it happen right here first? Lord, would you use West Michigan to launch the next phase of your kingdom? Jesus, we pray this, and we pray this in your beautiful name. And everybody said, amen, would you please? We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.